Um, Turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. We're going to be in verse 1 through 13. Next week, Jameson is going to take us uh, verse 14 through 23. So I'm going to hand the baton off to him today. Hopefully, it'll be a smooth transition. Um, I'm just going to start off by reading the first five verses. Um, But first, let me pray. Jesus, I ask that you would lead us through the scripture today. I pray that you'd be with me. Help me to be a good guide. Um, Help me to speak truth. Help me to speak, um, help me to rightly divide this scripture. Um, Help me to show it in its wholeness, in its fullness. I pray that you'd help us all to hear with spiritual ears how this applies to our hearts and our minds, our lives, our friends, our neighbors, all of those things. And Lord, help us to love this city. Help us to go out with the love that you give us to love others. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees, this is kind of the parenthesis, is kind of by the way, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. Uh, when When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating with instead of eating their food with defiled hands. We're learning about, we're going through the book of Mark on Sunday morning so that we can learn about Jesus. We can learn the things that he was passionate about. We can learn things that made him happy. We can learn about things that bothered him. And that's what we come to today. We're coming to something in Jesus's life that annoyed him, that irked him. In fact, that made him extremely angry Um, And this is a feature you're going to see throughout many of the Gospels. All of the Gospels is a theme. Jesus had some real problems with the religious community of his day, with the religious elites of his day. Your your Bibles will call them Pharisees. Those are a sect of Judaism that prided themselves on living according to the the, uh, minutia of the law, to the the, um, exact nature of, of the law of Moses. And you're going to find, if you ever want to see instances where Jesus gets angry and gets mad or delivers a a critique, his strongest rebukes were aimed at the religious community. And sometimes the religious community made him so angry that you remember those, those, um, uh, the famous anger Jesus moment was when he made a whip and cleared out the temple. He was mad. He was really mad. Um, And this is interesting because on the outside, here's the thing. So because Jesus is mad, we tend to think, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time, we tend to think, oh, Pharisees bad. They're they're bad people, right? But the reality is they were trying to follow God's law with all of their heart. That's what the Pharisees were about. They were so loyal to the nation of Israel, they were so loyal to the God of the nation of Israel that they wanted to do right down to every jot, every line, every punctuation mark, they wanted to do exactly what they could to, to, to please God and to take care of their nation. They took it, these would be the super spiritual religious zealots. These guys are taking their relationship with God extremely seriously. And so if we can take off our glasses of these guys are bad and look at it from maybe uh, their culture's perspective, you're going to find that this is actually quite surprising. You would think to yourself, why does Jesus have so much beef with these guys, with these people? Shouldn't they be on the same page? And yet they're constantly locking horns. Um, They prayed um, when they were supposed to pray and how they were supposed to pray. They were faithful. They faithfully gave their money and their resources to the temple. Even when it was at expense to themselves, they faithfully gave. They spoke out against, they were brave. They spoke out against immorality and against evil, these Pharisees did. Um, They served God day and night. They completely dedicated their entire lives to the service of God. 
and they try to dedicate every aspect of their lives um, in every way, their children, in every, in, um, the way they raise their families, their marriages, all of that. And yet, Jesus and these religious community, they clash over and over and over and over. In fact, Jesus, at some point, you see that he was grieved by them. He was grieved. Some of his most famous stories and his most famous parables, I'm thinking of the parable of the um, prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, is really aimed at this community. Not aimed at the prodigal, the wayward person, but aimed at the older brother, and if you're familiar with the story, the older brother represent this community that stays behind, faithfully serves the dad, never does anything wrong, and then at the end of the story, they're indignant because the dad throws the prodigal a party, and what does the elder brother say? I've been here day after day, year after year. I've never done what that loser's done to your money, and yet you throw him a party? You owe me something. Really interesting. So in this passage, Jesus receives um, an official delegation of these folks from Jerusalem. They've come from, they've come from Jerusalem to the region of Galilee, and their entire purpose is to investigate the ministry of Jesus. That's why they're there. They're like inspectors. And this is not the first time we've seen such an entourage from Jerusalem come to investigate Jesus. The first time we ran into them was in Mark chapter 3. And in that situation, they made such a harsh judgment about Jesus and his ministry that he said, okay, here's our assessment of your ministry. You're from the devil. That's what we think. And they had some exchange of words there. So clearly, what we can know about them is that this second delegation from Jerusalem is not sincere from the outset. They're already, they've already made up their minds about Jesus before they've even gotten there, okay? They feel that it's their responsibility to come and evaluate and to tear down the ministry of Jesus. Now, on, on one hand, I wanna, get, I wanna give them a fair shake here. There's nothing wrong with the concept of these men evaluating the ministry of Jesus. As a matter of fact, it's a responsible move. From the outward glance, these men were trying to protect Israel um, a potential threat of a false Christ or a false Messiah. So it's good and right, again, on the outside, for these religious leaders to come when a man teaches and makes these great claims about himself and people are starting to follow him. Any leader who cares about his people are, is gonna take uh, pains, great pains to protect them and to know what's going on, right? So they were right in the concept but they were wrong in the way they actually evaluated the life and ministry of Jesus. First, they came into this with extreme bias. They weren't there to investigate something and, and really find out if it was true or not. They came already assuming it was wrong. They've already made up their minds. They're not sincerely wondering if Jesus is the Messiah or not. Is he the Christ? Is he the, the Davidic king that we've been, we've been waiting for? So their hearts are already shut. And you know, when someone's heart is already shut, you, you, many of you know this, if you've interacted with anybody, um, uh, especially on social media, you, nothing gets resolved. Even no, no matter how good your argument is, no matter how airtight it might be, no matter how you appeal to them from your heart, if they're already shut, they can't see. It's, it's, it's really um, futile. But secondly, they don't evaluate Jesus against the measure of the Bible, the measure of God's word, but rather they judge Jesus on their own religious tradition and their ancient customs. Um, you could call them add-ons to the word of God, interpretations of the word of God. Their whole issue with Jesus here is that they saw his disciples eating bread with unwashed hands. That's what it says in verse two. That's the problem that they're finding. That's the first check on their clipboard. You know, they're writing something down. Hmm. They eat without one of hands. Um, well, first off, please understand, this has nothing to do with germs. <laughs> uh, germs, I think, germ theory was discovered in the late 19th century and proven in the 20th century. But uh, so way before anybody thought about that, this is complete ritual. That's what this is. This had nothing to do with physical cleanliness. The issue at hand here has to do with specific, a specific ceremony that they would ritualistically do before every meal. You started with a specific amount of water and you began, actually what you would do is you would drip the water, you would turn your hand upward and you would drip the water over your fingers and allow it to run down to your wrist and then with your other hand you would make a fist and you would wring it 
you would kind of do that and kind of wring out your hands and then you would do the same action with this and you'd wring out your hands and then you would turn your hands this way and you'd let the water drip off in, on, onto the earth. That was the way you did it. In fact, there was even a prayer that you prayed while you were doing this. Blessed be thou, O Lord, King of the universe, who sanctifies us by the laws and commanded us to wash our hands. That's what prayer, prayer was. Amen. Then your hands were ceremonially clean and you could eat at that point. So this was a pure, purely a ceremonial custom. It had nothing to do with properly cleaning yourself from germs or anything like that. So these religious police, if you would, sent, they're sent from Jerusalem. They come, they notice that Jesus' disciples don't go through with this ceremony before they eat. They didn't do the ritual. And so they confront Jesus about it and they ask, why are, you, why, are you, why are you okay with this? You're responsible for these people. They're following you in their devotion to God. You're a rabbi. How come you don't instruct your disciples correctly when it comes to true devotion to God? And see, that's the Pharisees. They were so devoted, even how they ate and washed their hands. Everything had to do with God. They didn't think in terms of, um, here's where God dwells in my life, here's my family life, and here's my business. It all ran through. It all ran through. Um, now notice that even the Pharisees made it very clear in the passage that the disciples were not breaking a commandment, but a tradition, a tradition by the elders. Even they make that distinction. You need to know that the Jewish people put these traditions and rituals on the same level as the word of God. So in the Old Testament, <clears throat> When a Jewish person says the law, that term the law, what they're referring to is the scriptures, primarily the first five books of your Bible, the Torah. So what's interesting about this and what's really important for you to keep in mind is that the law, and we're, you're, you're gonna fall away from our discussion unless we have a baseline of definition here. When Jesus, when the disciples, when Paul used the term the law, they were referring to the first five books of the Bible as a literary whole. Which mean, and do you know what, what kind of genre the first five books of the Bible are? Someone say narrative. Yes, narrative. That's exactly right. In other words, they're not, um, they're not law commands. In fact, a very small percentage of the law is prohibition. You should do this and shouldn't do this and don't do this and don't do this and do this but don't do this. Very small. It's the story from Genesis, Adam, Abraham, Egypt. All of that is considered the Mosaic law. It's very important that we understand that. <clears throat> and we'll get into that later. But um, on top of that... <clears throat> They also had something called the oral law or the oral traditions. The oral law was the interpretation of the Torah, okay? Um, they, had, they had it written down it's the, in the Talmud, the Mishnah, and all, basically all these encyclopedias of Jewish tradition and interpretation of the law that were based on the interpretation of these scriptures. And, you know, we do the same thing, do, do we not? When we teach or when we do a Bible study or, we, or even when we read, it's a, it'll be amazing to you how much that maybe you don't even know an interpretation of some sermon that you've heard or some book that you've read is coming out when you're reading it. And sometimes it's, it, the lines get blurry. One of the most um, uh, shocking, or I guess, I don't know what word I should use, but one of the most standing out things of, that I've experienced I, by going to school <clears throat> in seminary was realizing as I'm listening to these professors and as they're teaching me just the Bible, realizing, oh, I didn't get that from Romans. I got that from Calvary Chapel. The whole time thinking, but realizing, oh gosh. And it doesn't mean it's wrong necessarily, but it means that, you know, when we get back to the raw scripture, you should just try it. I should have my professor come and just let you ask him questions. And he'll just be like, what's this verse mean? And you'll say, you'll say something that you've heard. Not knowing you, that it's something that you've heard. He'll say, where is that there? And you look and you'll go, oh, it's not there. It doesn't say that actually. Oh my gosh. So we do the same thing. 
And back then, there was this blending of all of these famous rabbis and teachers and interpretations of the law that were starting to, and Jesus is gonna start pulling these things apart. He's gonna start kind of untangling. And the famous part where he, place that he does that is his Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you've heard it said, but I say. What's he doing? Ripping. You've heard it said, some people have said, but here's what I say. Some people have said this, but I say, see? And he goes back to the scripture. He goes back to just the scripture. <clears throat> so um, they used to teach that many people in Jesus' day, they valued what some men said about, the, about God's word, and it started to become more than what, what God's word said itself. And there's a reason for that that Jesus and later Paul is going to expose, and we're going to need to go a little deep into the theological uh, deep end here, but I think it'll be really important for you. Um, these guys took his hand, his, his hand cleaning ceremony extremely seriously. They used to teach that bread eaten, by the way, they used to teach that bread eaten without clean hands was like eating dung. Yep. I even ran into an account when I was studying this. I even ran into an account of a rabbi who failed to perform this ritual before he ate and he was excommunicated. He was no longer allowed into, into the temple to worship God. He was kicked out because he didn't do the whole thing. He was probably super hungry and just started scarfing it down. And they're like, out, you're out of here. Okay, so that's how seriously they took this. Many traditions and rituals that they had and that we have seemed to be built on an unshakable spiritual logic. Okay, many of the traditions that we do in our culture and in our church and Christianity seem to be built on an unshakable spiritual logic. So this whole tradition of washing hands, they got this originally from Exodus chapter 30, where God commands the priest, Aaron, and his sons that in the course of carrying out their priestly duties, they should wash their hands and their feet. That's Exodus chapter 30. It was, a, it was symbolic. It was a symbolic way of being clean before God while you're serving him. Be clean before him. But their logic took things further. Eventually, they started to think, well, shouldn't everybody be as devoted to God in their lives as priests? Well, then everybody should be doing this. It began to grow, see. Shouldn't every faithful follower of God be just as devoted as a priest? In fact, in the Old Testament, we're, we're a nation of priests. Sure, there's a Levitical priesthood, absolutely, but we all should be held to a, a, a higher accountability. Doesn't God want us to honor him in everything that, that we do? Don't, haven't we preached that from this pulpit? We want to honor God in everything that we do. Sounds pretty reasonable. Isn't every meal sacred to God? This is what they would argue. Or maybe they would throw this out. Shouldn't, doesn't Psalm 24 Say, who may ascend unto the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The answer, he who has what? Clean hands and a pure heart. So, and so went the logic. This is how it went. This is how it went. And maybe you're thinking, well, shoot, when you put it like that, maybe we should be washing our hands in a different kind of a way. Well, look how Jesus responds to them in verse six. He replies, it's really interesting. He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. So Jesus being, he's a little, you know, this is Jesus being straight up and blunt. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And then Jesus says, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he, and he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Now here we've got to ask the question, what are the commands of God and what are they for? And here's where I'm gonna take you on a little journey <clears throat> into what the law means, what it was for, is it good or is it bad? Because especially when you get into the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul takes this Jesus tradition and he really puts meat on these bones. People are super confused when they read the Apostle Paul because on the one hand, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter seven will say the law is righteous, holy, and really good. But then on the other hand, in Galatians chapter three, verse 13, Paul will say the law is a curse. 
he, he compares it to being enslaved. That's the idea. So here's what I want to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read something to you. This is Galatians chapter 3. Paul is basically saying what Jesus is actually saying. He's saying there is a relationship in your heart. There's a relationship in my heart with the sin that's in my heart and the law of God. And it's a profound relationship. It's a mysterious relationship. There is, they are bedfellows. They cannot be separated. Sin and law, they go together in a very dastardly way. Okay? That's what Paul is saying the whole time. And here he's going to explain it. Let me read this to you. This, you can turn there if you want, but I'll, I'll just show you. This is Galatians chapter 3. Here's where he calls it a curse. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Notice the extreme language. Paul is saying more than. He's not saying the law doesn't work anymore. He's not saying the law um, is irrelevant. He's not saying um, the law, you can either take it or leave it. He uses extreme language, and this is just one of many. He's the curse. It's a curse to us, all right? Keep that in mind. And he goes on to explain. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Christ, uh, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Jesus Christ, play, I, you got to stay with me. In Jesus Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We're asking the question, what is the law? What's it for? Okay, now I'm going to skip down to verse 13. He says, this is what I mean. He's going to tell us, here's what I mean. The law, ready, which came 430 years afterwards, after what? Abraham and the blessing, right? After 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void, so here's what we've got. We've got law and we've got covenant and promise and he's pitting the two against each other. He's saying the law, the law of Moses, remember the Torah as a literary whole, that came 430 years after a promise was made, a covenant was made to, to Abraham. And I'm t willing to make up with you guys that that is the law behind the law, you could say, or the heart behind the law. That is the real, where the money's at. And these specific commands, this doubling down is what's made it a curse when it's mixed with our sin. Um, let me put it this way. Um, I was discussing this with um, some eighth graders earlier this week, so I thought the analogy worked, so I'll use the same analogy here. Let's say... Um, Let's say, by the way, my friend Taylor Randall's here today. He was providing the funky beats. Yes, wasn't that so good, you guys? Um, on three, let's say, stay here, Taylor. One, two, three. Stay here, Taylor. Thank you. Thank you. You will stay here. Um, let's say, uh, so I know Taylor since he was a little, little guy. And let's say at one point when Taylor starts to drive, I'm gonna, you, you're probably never going to come again, but um, Taylor, Taylor starts to drive, and let's say Bob and Kristen say, uh, he says, can I borrow the car? I want to go out with my friends. And Bob and Kristen say, come back at a reasonable time. Okay? I want you to come back at a reasonable time. Well, he rolls in at one or two in the morning. And they say, what is going on? And he said, well, reasonable to me is one or two in the morning. So now, so there's a heart behind. They want him to make wise choices for himself, right? They're not going to be specific. You want your kids to be able to think for themselves. I've got school in the morning. I've got homework. I probably should get some sleep. You want them to do that. But Taylor's not getting it. So now what do they have to do? 430 years later, we got to get specific. Okay, let's get specific with you because you're not getting it. Remember what happened? The, the Israelites came out of Egypt. God parted the Red Sea. It was this miraculous thing through the slaughtering of a lamb. They come out of the Red Sea and he ratifies this covenant with them at the foot of Mount Sinai. It was like a beautiful marriage covenant. Remember the story? They're, they're there. They meet with God. It's like they're back to Eden. Um, Moses is getting these, he's making plans to make this house. Like it really is, it reads like a marriage ceremony. 
And basically, the idea is, is that on God and Israel's honeymoon, so to speak, Moses comes down from the mountain and he sees Israel sleeping with another woman, like on the honeymoon. That's the idea. And it breaks God's heart. And he says, I'm going to leave. He says to Moses, I'm out. And here's a, you know, uh, Moses says, don't do it. Don't do it. Please don't do it. Because God says, I'll start a new nation with you, with your people, you know. And Moses says, don't do it, don't do it. Now, we've been taught to say that this is God testing Moses. But if you look at the text, there's just no indication that that is. You have to take it for what it reads. God was serious. He was seriously hurt. And then Moses keeps pleading. And one of the things that he pleads is like, look what you've done. Look at the promises that you've made. Look how you've saved these people. And so finally, God comes back and says, well, fine. I'll go, but I'll send you into the promised land, but I'm not going with you. And Moses isn't having it. He says, no, 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 the promised land is not the promised land without you. You gotta come with us, be with your people. And that's the famous place where God reveals himself in Exodus, Exodus 34, where he says, he passes before Moses and he says his name, Jehovah, Jehovah, Yahweh, Yahweh, you know, compassionate, merciful, forgiving sins up to thousands of generations. And you know, the whole thing that he says that Israel knows this is who God is. Who's he being merciful to? Who's he being compassionate to? Idol worshipers. This is all part of the golden calf story. It doesn't stop. Even though it's chapters away, it's all part of the same narrative. He's being faithful and loving people that have just violently betrayed him. That's the idea. But he says, I'm gonna go with you, but let's get a little bit more specific on these rules. Let's get a little bit more specific and Paul is saying that those rules that were good, this is Romans, uh, Romans chapter seven, that which was intended to bring life eventually brought death. Why? Well, because the sin in our hearts has a way of making really good things a curse. Let me keep going with the analogy. Let's say Taylor starts coming home at 10. It's great. And then one night, he comes home at 10 and he shares with Bob and Kristen, he says, well, yeah, there's this person that showed up at the party. They were just really, really hurting and they needed a, a place to stay and they just were asking all these questions about Jesus and Kristen and, and Bob say, did you tell him about Jesus? And he says, well, no, I had to be back by 10. See, at that point, Paul would say, now that specific law has become a curse to Taylor because he's not fulfilling his his, the, the purpose of his life as a human being, and that is to share love, to be others-focused. And if, you came, if Taylor came back after 10, he came back at 12, and Kristen and Bob were like wringing their hands, they're like, why did you do that? And he says, well, look, there's this guy that was there, he needed a place to stay, so I drove him over here, I paid for him to go to a hotel, and I shared Jesus with him, and I'm sorry my phone died, but I figured it was the right thing to do. Would Kristen and Bob be mad? They'd be like, that's awesome. Why? Because he gets the spirit behind the rule, see? He gets the spirit behind the law. And that's what Paul and Jesus are saying here. They're saying because you've, been, you, you've cursed yourself, because you've focused so much on the minutia that now you're excluding everybody else. You're excluding all these other people. You've missed the heart behind the law. In Matthew, um, Jesus actually tells them, go away and learn this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He says that to the Pharisees. Go learn something here. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And that's his direct reference to Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet, that was his message to the, to the, king, the, to the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem throughout the whole book. He goes, you're honoring me on the outside, but you've missed it on the inside. Imagine if Noble came to me one day and said, Dad, from this point forward, I will obey all of your rules I will not skip a beat. I'll follow them to the minutest detail. But he looks at me with hatred in his eyes and he says, but you will never have my heart. I hate you. Is that a win for me as a dad? No. No. I want that boy's heart. I want his affection. I want relationship with him. See? See? And those rules become a curse and they actually become a way for us to keep God away or for us to um, leverage him. There's a few ways that you'll know if this is happening. Well, let me keep going with Jesus here. 
He calls them hypocrites. Um, They're focusing on trivial positions in which to categorize people, and it reveals the evil that's in their heart. Notice the heart of the problem that Jesus exposes in these guys in verse six. He says, the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's the heart of the matter. It's the heart that matters. They projected the image of being very spiritual, but their hearts were dead to God. That is really scary. It should scare you. (laughs) Because this is what we religious folk are susceptible to. This is what we religious folk are susceptible to. Um, Would God say something similar to us today? They go to church, but their heart is far from me. They contribute money, but their heart is far from me. They read their Bibles, but their hearts are far from me. They do ministry, but their hearts are far from me. They talk to others, but their hearts are far from me. See, God is interested in the heart or the why behind what you're doing what you're doing. Your bodies are here before the Lord, and I think that's wonderful, but man, I hope your heart is too. That's the goal of every Sunday morning here. That your heart would come before the Lord. That you, not that you would come and sit down. The problem with those of us who are legalistic and religious is that our evil hearts, that is the sin that's in our evil hearts, has turned godly things, even good things, good traditions that even rest on spiritual logic, some really good things, we turn, we, it turns us into some, someone arrogant, prideful, and gross before the Lord. They make us forget what the reason is in the first place. They make us forget that we needed saving at some point in our life. And God came and rescued us. We do this. We, uh, sometimes we Christians use our spirituality, our doctrines, to justify our hatred. I'm talking to me too. We do this. Um. Take, take our view on our people that don't agree with us. Take, take our view on, on the evangelical view on homosexuality, for example. <clears throat> we can use our right doctrine, our biblical doctrine, and our biblical wisdom to justify the fact that some of us are just very uncomfortable with people that identify a different way. Right? We avoid them. We don't think that God will redeem them or heal them, and we end up feeling that we're on a higher moral plane. I was just talking to somebody. Did you guys, were you guys, anybody Jeopardy fans? Okay, recent, Nathan? Yeah, of course, you kidding me? <clears throat> Who is the recent um, gal on Jeopardy that just won this incredible, she was a transgender woman? I don't remember her name. But she won this enormous amount of money, She's super smart. And I was talking to somebody who said, I don't want her to win because she's, she's trans and she's against God and I don't want anything good to come to her. And I said, that's not the heart of Christ. That's not the heart of the Lord. We can disagree with people disagreeably. We can still love. And remember that we, and so we, we I, what Jesus would say is the law has become a curse to you. The law and the rules, even if they're right, but the way you're using them has become a curse to you. It's a, it's, so what is, what is the law? Let's, let's, boil, let's get specific. What, what is the heart behind the law? Well, notice he referenced Abraham. Paul, excuse me, I'm back to Paul. I'm sorry, I'm all over the place. In Galatians 3, Paul references Abraham. What is, it's, it behooves us to ask, well, what is it? What is the heart behind the law? What is that? Well, let me read a few things to you. Look at, um, let's, let's talk about Abraham a little bit. Let's look at Genesis chapter 12. Let's go back to the very beginning. I'm gonna say that this is Abrahamic, what I'm gonna call Abrahamic righteousness. This is 430 years before the law, and this is the part that Paul says should not ever go away. The law, the rules, in terms of the rules, the minutia, those types of things, that's, That's not to supersede the heart behind it. What's the heart behind it? Well, look what he says. He says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. By the way, this isn't, I want you to see this. I will bless you and make your name great. Ready? So that 
you will be a blessing to who? Verse three, I will bless those who bless you and, and him who dishonors you, I will, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth, that means every living soul will be blessed because of you. In other words, I'm blessing you, Abraham. I've chosen you, Abraham, so that through, and I'm, and I'm gonna bless the world by blessing you, okay? Now, if you go down, um, Abraham's going through, he goes into the land of Canaan, and there in the land of Canaan, he sets up an altar to Yahweh. Yahweh says to him, he meets him in the land of Canaan, he says, hey, one day, Abraham, all this land will be yours. All of this land will be yours. And so Abraham sets up an altar in the land of Canaan to Yahweh. Now, don't, I need to build this out a little bit because you could miss it. In that day and age, gods or images were over certain territories or certain lands, okay? So what would happen is you'd be traveling through, you know, they didn't have borders like we do today where it says, you know, welcome to Oregon or welcome to Washington. For then, you would be walking along and you'd see an image to Baal or to Ashtoreth. And you would go, oh, this land belongs to Baal, okay? And what you were supposed to do by pain of death in Canaan was to offer tribute to the God of that region. Okay, here Abraham scrolls through. He's in Canaan, not Yahweh worshipers. And Yahweh says, this land actually belongs to me. And at cost to his own life, possibly, Abraham builds an altar to Yahweh. So I will say, here's what I'm gonna build out with you. I will say the first principle of Abrahamic righteousness behind the law of Moses, Abrahamic righteousness is loyalty to Yahweh even in a foreign land, even when it might get you killed. We see that in Abraham 430 years before the law. Here's the, here's the first be home at a reasonable time principle, okay? Be loyal to Yahweh even when it might get you killed. Let's keep going. Look at, uh, if you're following with me, we can go to chapter 15 of Genesis. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. But Abram says, oh, Lord God, that you would give me, for I continue childless, and the heir of my house is, is Eliezer of Damascus. In other words, because I don't have a kid, I'm gonna have to give my legacy, my family, and all of you know, my, my uh riches and my, my inheritance to, a, to a, a, a servant of mine. And back then, kids were everything. It wasn't an individualistic society like it, we have. It was a collective society where your kids, you lived through your children, okay? So Abraham's super bothered about this. And look at, um, he, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. He said, this man will not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and, and said, look toward the heaven, Abram, and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So Abraham's extremely old at this point, way, and his wife, way beyond the time when people should be, be allowed to have kids. And look at, right here, verse six says, and Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham showed up at a reasonable time and his dad was proud. That's righteous to me. You get it. Number one, loyalty to Yahweh in a foreign land, even when it might get you killed. Secondly, Abrahamic righteousness is trusting Yahweh even when it doesn't make sense. Trusting Yahweh even when it doesn't make sense. I can find, I can find two more for you. Verse, uh, ch chapter 18, God says this at the, uh, at the end, well, in the middle of that chapter, uh, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? He's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? Listen, all and all the nations of the earth, it goes back to Genesis 12, he's referring to, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. God has not forgotten his promise. For I have chosen him, God expounds. Why? That he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. Here it is, guys. How are they gonna do this? By doing righteousness and justice on the earth. Tzadikah mishpat is the, Hebrew, is the Hebrew word for that. These are two words that always go together in the Bible, in the Old Testament. 
Righteousness and justice. It's the Bible's version of justice. But it doesn't mean justice the way we think of it. Here in the West, we think of justice in terms of equality. We should, you know, if I, if I have, if we have, you know, if I have 10 crackers and there's two of us, you should fairly get five and I should get five. That's equality, that's justice, that's fairness. That's the way we think about it here in the West. But the Bible describes this with this term, sadaqah mishpat, righteousness judgment. The Bible is talking about a giving at great cost to yourself. In other words, it's saying redemptive justice is not fair. It would say, Jameson's hungry and I'm hungry and there's one sandwich and I have it. I'm gonna trade places with him. I'm gonna know what it's like to be him. I'm gonna go hungry so that he can know what it's like to be me and have provision and have food. The Bible's version of justice is the exact opposite of fairness. And the ultimate um, display of this, obviously, is what? Jesus on the cross, right? He gave. This is the mystery behind Jesus' miracles. Remember the story of the woman that pressed in in the crowd and she, she touched the hem of his garment and Jesus realized something's, I've, I've lost something? We always think, well, if he's God, how can he lose anything? Isn't he infinite? There's a point here. The point is, there can't be healing without sacrifice. His miracles were based on that. I'm gonna give, I'm gonna take a hit. I'm gonna take on your humanity. I'm gonna take on your brokenness so that you can take on my healing, my health, my goodness. That is a Christian example. And that is what the nation of Israel was, the way the nation of Israel was to bless the earth, the way Abraham was to bless the earth was by doing sadaqah mishpat. In other words, giving even at great cost to themselves. That's the third one. Giving at great cost to yourself. So Abrahamic righteousness means loyalty to Yahweh even when it might get you killed. It means trusting him even when it doesn't make sense. It may, uh, 18, it means doing sadaqah mishpat, doing justice on the earth, giving it even at great cost to yourself. And finally, we think of Genesis 22, right? I mean, how can we not think of that? That's when Abraham shines like a star. God says, I want you to go sacrifice your son, your only son whom you love, up on this mountain after God had promised him Isaac. Remember that? And what, is, what does Abraham say? You guys, this is a famous story. They're going up the mountain and and. Isaac, who's about 13 at this point, 14, somewhere in there, he says, hey, Dad, I know, I've noticed we have the wood. I notice we've got the, the, the whatever else we have, but we don't have the sacrifice. We don't have the lamb. And what does Abraham say in faith? He says, the Lord himself will supply a sacrifice. Actually, the word, um, the word in he, a, a direct translation is actually the Lord himself will be the sacrifice or will provide himself a as a sacrifice is the implication. I would say, just to skip to the end, because what time is it anyway? Oh, we're good. <laughs> We've got hours. Um, uh, the fourth one is to look for provision in Messiah, to look for salvation in, in Messiah, to look for a salvation that comes from Yahweh. I, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm making up, I'm gonna argue with you that, that it, the, those four pillars at least, maybe you could find more in the life of Abraham, but those four pillars at least make up the principles, the heart behind the law. Let me ask you this, can we find those four things in Jesus? I mean, I know everyone's gonna say yes, but right? Let, let, let's think about it. Did Jesus, um, was he loyal to Yahweh even when it got him killed? Yeah. Absolutely. Did he trust in Yahweh even though it didn't make sense? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Um, did Jesus do sadaqah mishpat? Did he give at great cost to himself? Absolutely, he did. Absolutely. And he is the provision. He is the Messiah that saved the world through him. That is the point that is the point. And only that comes through relationship and by following, by, we call Christians are better, a better term for Christian, in my opinion, is a follower of Jesus. We're following him, and that does have an example piece. Jesus is much more than an example, don't hear me wrong, but he's, he's at least an example 
for us. We're following him. So here's what this means. It means that the cross and the way of Jesus, the Jesus traditions that we're reading about in Mark, the way of Jesus is not just something that he did in our place. It is that, but it's more than that. It's something that also empowers us to do the same thing, to follow the same way. If we are to live, if we're looking for a way to live, here's what I'm saying. Be home at a reasonable time. In other words, live according to the heart of the law that's led by the Spirit, not according to the letter of the law, okay? Otherwise, it will become a curse. Paul both affirms the law and he also trashes it. How do we reconcile that? Because here's what he's saying. He's saying if you, he's not condemning the practices of the law. Listen to me carefully. Paul is condemning the dependence on the law. Because he will use it and affirm it positively as wisdom. He will say, he will say but always as wisdom. Did you know that Paul, never in his writings, never in, Paul, in the Pauline epistles, will he say to Christians, do the law, obey the law. Um, he, he uses in other terms like fulfill the law. But he'll never say, do it and obey it. He'll never use, he uses that for Jewish people. And he says, and that's your curse, because he's talking about a dependence. He's saying we as Christians are no longer dependent on the law for our salvation, but he will apply the law to Christians for wisdom literature. In other words, do it not to be saved, but do it because it's just smart and wise. Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is good. It's going to promise you a blessing. You'll, you'll have a better life, a happier life. You'll live longer but not to be saved. And he's saying the moment your sinful heart begins to use the law as a way to save yourself, self-salvation, it then becomes a curse. That's the problem. And he has the strongest language when you use the law in that aspect or with that angle on it. How do you know you're doing that? How do you know if you're doing that? Well, for one thing, there's a few things. One thing you can know is when the way you look at other, the other. If you find yourself looking down on people who are not living the way you are, who are not following the law the way you are, and you feel better than them, you feel contempt for them, you can know, not as a way to shame yourself, but as a way to take your spiritual vitals, you can know, okay, I've, the law has crossed the line into something that's, that's no longer wisdom. It's no, it says Paul, will use, Paul uses the law positively as wisdom and prophecy, but he uses it negatively as um, salvation code, moral code, law code. That's the idea. He, he uses it very positively when he talks about eschatology and prophecy. And this is how Jesus fulfills it. And this is how it was pointing to Jesus. He's like, yay law, when it comes to that. When it comes to ethics, how a Christian community works with itself and works out in the world to change the world, doing sadaka mishpat. He loves the law, but the moment... Anybody starts to talk about, especially Galatians, but Romans too, the moment that people start to talk about the law in terms of this is what makes me valid before God, he goes, oh, you're cursed. It's a slave to you. It's got you in bondage. Jesus came to set you free from the curse of the law, see? That's the idea. So in one way, is the law good? Yes. But in another way, it depends on how you're using it. How are you using the law? You can know by how you look down on others. Another way you can know is when hard times hit you. When you go through hard times, because you will, or you have already, when you go through hard times, when you start getting angry at God. Again, not as a way of shaming yourself, but taking your vitals. When you notice that anger and contempt, there's no condemnation for that. Notice the entire book of Job was him having some serious conversations with God and God never rebukes him for asking honest questions. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying it's a way to probe your heart and go, wait a second, do I feel like God owes me something? I've been faithful, I've done nothing wrong, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. How dare God treat me this way? That could be an indication that you're using the rules or the law to make yourself feel better than others. Okay? That's a great indication. Or if you think that God is cursing you. Oh, this, finally my sins are catching up to me. He's punishing me. 
that can tell you that you're back in the arena of religion. And here's what I'm gonna say to you. I think based on all of this data, Jesus Christ did not come to start a religion. Do do you know that? In fact, I will even say, Jesus Christ, based on all the data, Jesus Christ did not come to start the, the greatest religion. Jesus Christ came to destroy religion. Jesus Christ came to destroy religion. As defined, religion defined as self-salvation, following some code to save myself, going on pilgrimage, adhering to this so that I can be saved. Because of that, I can be saved. That's the religion. That goes even beyond religious uh, language. This is a condition of the heart. When we say things like, um, oh, I'm, I'm a West Sider and those East Side people, this and that, I'm proud to be a West Sider. That's religious language. Because I'm using something, anything. When you say, oh, I'm a Democrat and those stupid Republicans, I'm a Republican, those stupid progressive Democrats. What are you doing? You're profiling, you're categorizing based on some code that you have. And you might even be correct in your, some of your assumptions, but you're using it in your heart to have status, to say, I'm okay. What is that kind of language? We call that, in the religious world, we call that salvation language. I'm all right. I can feel a little bit better about myself because at least I fill in the blank. We say, that's salvation language. That's the language of self-salvation. Rather than, no, I'm a sinner, saved by grace, I'm lost, saved by free, free grace salvation. Jesus came to a broken person. I am beautiful and broken. I'm magnificent and marred. I'm wonderful and weird. <laughs> That's the human race. That's humanity. We're all of it bundled into one. And we're pervasively depraved. And that means we're not as bad as we could be, but sin has touched every part of our lives. Every part. We need to be saved. And so when I look at somebody that believes something different than me, when I look at somebody that, that I think is, is wrong, I can look at them and still I can, in one space, I can hold my wisdom, my beliefs, and at the same time, not look down on them, not feel superior to them, I can disagree agreeably. I can still say, you're made in the image of God. I can look people in the eye and say, I love you. God made you. I know what it is to be lost. I know what it is to be broken. I know what that is. And I also know what it is to be found and saved. So I can do sadaqah mishpat. I can give without discrimination to everybody around me at cost to myself, I can do that. I can live that way. You want to talk about a revolution, that'll do it. In fact, it did do it. Look at the church in the first century. It, it wasn't the sermons. It wasn't, those things were great. It was churches, it was Christians giving at great cost to themselves that turned the Greco-Roman world on its head. Why did they do that? They, because they were following a God who did that themselves. They were following a God who left heaven and left the privilege of heaven and left it all to come at great cost to himself to live a life of suffering and then to die the most horrible death on the cross so that we could be redeemed. And God says, now you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. I've given you, the, I've given you, Paul says, the ministry of reconciliation, and he points back to the cross, that as God reconciled the world to himself, so we say to the world, be reconciled to God. How does that work? Abrahamic righteousness. You guys, be loyal to God, even when it might hurt you. I think that's a great message for us in Seattle. Followers of Jesus in Seattle. Be loyal to God, even when it might get you your reputation killed, even when you might lose friends, right? But how do you balance that out? How do you balance that out? Well, you trust God, even when it doesn't make sense. Trust him. How do we do that? I will say, I personally, I don't have a text to prove this, but I think I'm right. I don't think we can do that alone. 
The only way I can trust God when it doesn't make sense is with you guys. I really need you guys for that, and I think you need me for that. We need each other for that. I trust God because when, during the week, I get confused, and then I come here on Sunday morning, and I, and I talk to you guys, and I go, oh, that's right. That's right. God does love me, and there is a plan in this, and there is something redemptive. Thank you for sharing that perspective because I forgot. We need that, right? We lose our minds. In the famous Greek story of, the, of was it Odysseus or I can't remember, the guy that was um, you know, sailing, he, he basically told his, uh, the crew on his boat, I want to get home, but we're going to sail past the, the island of the sirens, right? And they're going to sing this beautiful song. And the, and the sirens, they would sing this song, and sailors so loved to hear the song that they would get too close to the, to the, to the, to the shore, and the rocks out of the ocean would, would kill everybody, they would Tear, tear their ships apart. Well, this guy, he wants to get home, but he, but he wants to hear this song. So he says to his sailors, he says to his crew, I'm going to, I want to get home, but I want to hear this song. I'm going to tie myself to the mast, but I'm going to fill your, your ears with wax. And we're going to sail past the island of the sirens, and I'm going to lose my mind. You just get me home. Just get me home. I think, I feel like, I feel like saying that with you guys. Hey, you guys, I'm going to lose my mind. And there's times where I'm, you're going to see me lose it. Just get me home. Just get me there. You're going to be thinking straighter than me. And we do that for each other. Without you, I'm going to lose my mind. But I've tied myself to the mast. Just get me home. Sometimes we need to get each other there. We need to get each other home. And that's what this is about. Trusting God when it doesn't make sense. When other beautiful noises are coming in at us from all over the place. And we're like, oh, that's really. We come here and we go, oh, yeah. Thirdly, we practice Sadaqah Mishpat. If all of us went out here and just gave to our neighbors acts of kindness, and especially those at cost to ourselves. In other words, don't just give when you've got extra. Give when it costs you something. That's redemptive power. I really believe it. I really do. I believe that's where power lies. You see that list on the screen? Well, I guess we don't have it there, but the list of stuff that we need? Maybe it's not if you have an extra coat or an extra belt or an extra. Maybe give the one you have. Why? I personally think that that, is, that touches, the, that's something ancient. There's something Abrahamic in that kind of way of living. That's the be home on time at a reasonable time. And we watch God supply for us and it's beautiful. And fourthly, Look for provision in your Messiah. We're going to take communion right now. And that's what we're doing. When we, the reason we repeat this, Jesus said, do this often in remembrance of me. He was saying, continually look for provision in me, not your rule following. Not your, hey, do the law, you guys, because it's smart. It's wise. Your life will go better. That aligns with the Psalms, Psalm 1, uh, Psalm 119, Psalm 19. It aligns with all of it. The law is good. It's music to our ears as prophecy and as wisdom. But the minute our sin, so what is sin? Sin is anything that I use to save myself in this definition. Sin is anything that I use to save myself. And that's when that good thing or even good person becomes a curse. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Are you smelling what I'm stepping in? Okay, so we're gonna take communion and what does this mean? And by the way, we have gluten-free communion now. So there you go. Um, what does this mean? We're coming up here and we're, this is an act of repentance. If you, and take some time, we'll sing some songs, we got a little bit of time. Evaluate, am I using good things, good people, good wisdom, as a way of validating myself, as feeling, yeah, that's why I'm so good, or at least I this, at least I don't that. Am I doing that? When you come up here, you're repenting of that mentality. You're saying, I'm not gonna depend on anything else except Jesus Christ. I'm gonna boast that I know, if I, if, you know, the Old Testament, if you're gonna boast, oh man, boast that you know him. I'm gonna boast that I know Jesus, that Jesus has set, set me free, but other, other than that, I'm not gonna boast in wisdom, uh, you know, it gives a list. All of those other things. So it's an act of repentance and it's an act of receiving what we're truly saved by. 
And you know it sets in because you can't look at yourself or the world the same way. You can't look down on anybody anymore. You're no better than anyone else. You're saved. You've received a gift. And that gift is open to anybody and you've received it. It makes you a grateful person. It gives you gratitude. It makes you a forgiving person. It makes you a, a presence of peace and not a, a, a non-anxious presence in people's life when you go out there. That will attract people to you. You'll do sadaqah mishpat. It all starts right here at the cross, looking for provision in Messiah. Okay, 